0: she loved them. I was groping for some way to keep Laura's name out of it. She was always quick to seize upon anything that would improve her mind or her appearance. Laura had innate breeding. I selected a more attractive hairdress for her. I taught her what clothes were more becoming to her. Through me, she met everyone. Men admired her. Women envied her. have rarely met a girl like Laura. Few women have been so beautiful, so exotic, so dangerous to know. You're Laura Hunt, aren't you? Yes. I'm Shelby Carpenter. Want a dance? I'm not alone. Oh, you poor girl. I bet he still does the polka. Yes, Betsy Ross taught her to me. It was as natural for Laura to be picked out from among thousands of alluring girls as it was for her to be surrounded by luxury, mystery, and scheming men. Get going you better watch out, McPherson, or you'll end up in a psychiatric ward. I don't think I've ever had a patient who... fell in love with a corpse. Miss Hunt and I were going to be married this week, you know. No, he doesn't know. And neither do I, or you, or anyone else alive. What do you mean by that? As a matter of fact, she was going to the country to think it over. She was extremely kind, but I was always sure... she would never have thrown her life away on a male beauty in distress. Every woman will feel that when it comes to men, Laura gets by with murder. Every man will feel that when it comes to murder, it couldn't involve a more enticing girl. Don't worry. I told you I'd bring in the killer today. Yeah, I was just going to make the arrest when you call. No, I can't tell you now. I'm not alone. You'll see when I come in.
1: Hello, you're listening to Girls, Guts, and Giallo, and this is Annie Rose Malamette. I'm back today doing the the oldest film that I've done on the podcast yet. I'm talking about Laura from 1944 with Sarah Fonseca. Hi, Sarah. Hi, Annie. <laughs> so, Sarah, can you tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do, what you're about yes
2: hi i am a film critic and film programmer who's
1: based in new york city sarah why did you choose laura today
2: oh goodness well i think admittedly this was my very first film noir and of course you never forget your first and also it was a film that i found myself revisiting shortly after seeing phantom thread So having both of those on the tip of my tongue, I was thinking, oh, Mr. Woodcock resembles this dandy, sort of devious character in 1944's Laura. And when you asked me to be here today, it
1: was on the tip of my tongue once more.
2: And here we are.
1: So in my case, I didn't see Laura until very recently. Uh, I watched it when I was trying to catch up on all of the film noir gaps in my knowledge for the Twitter Noirvember challenge because I recently started studying erotic thrillers and neo-noir films and I felt like I should actually be versed in where those come from. So that was the first time I watched Laura, uh, and I really loved it. And would you consider this film, it's part of the classical period of American film noir, would you consider this a film noir? Um, yes.
2: And for all intents and purposes in November, certainly. I, I do find that your femme fatale character in this film is a little further removed than what we're typically acclimated to seeing at the same time it is a character that is kind of divisive among critics who will say that Gene Tierney's performance as Laura is more understated and irrelevant to the entire plot of the film and then people will be charmed by that same eligibility and say, no, she's actually very complex and you just have to take a second and third look. Mm.
1: Yeah, I would need to watch it again because I still don't really see or understand all of the complexities of her character. I'm so drawn in by the rest of the characters in the film that I haven't really sat with her yet as a character.
2: Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, we have Waldo and Anne. Right. And these tremendous tour de forces of stage who the director kind of allowed to have free reign over their characters and they're very amplified and exaggerated
1: and we would probably say queer, right? Yeah, absolutely. I yeah, will definitely talk about that. So. Films from 1944, directed by Otto Preminger, starring Gene Tierney as Laura, Dana Andrews as uh, McPherson, Detective McPherson, and Clifton Webb as Waldo Leideker, as well as Vincent Price as Shelby Carpenter and Judith, Dame Judith Anderson Damn. as Anne Treadwell. Uh, the film is based on the 1943 novel Laura by Vera Kaspari. And Preminger had wanted to adapt the novel for a long time, but he wanted to change a lot of it. And Kaspari didn't love that idea. Uh, She was actually more set on doing a theatrical adaptation, a stage production. Uh, She was going to work with George Sklar. And apparently they considered Marlena Dietrich for the part but that didn't work out. And so without a major star backing the production, they couldn't get financed for a national tour or a Broadway run. So the interim Fox studio head, William Gertz, serving while Daryl F. Zanuck was fulfilling his military duty, and that will become important in this story, assigned Preminger the task of developing the book for the screen. Uh, But And while he was doing that, Preminger kind of saw that he felt that Waldo Lydecker was a more interesting character than Laura, so his part became much more important in the screenplay, which Vera Kaspari was actually unhappy about. She was unhappy with the changes in the plot. I haven't read the book. Uh, I kind of want to now. Me too. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Book club. Yeah, <laughs> girls got jalo. Girls got jalo book club, right? <laughs> um, yeah, I would be interested to see what the actual differences are between the Leidegger character in the book and in the uh, in the film. Zanuck now having come back from his military uh, duty, uh, him and Premager had previously clashed before. And when he returned to the studio, he was pissed off that Gertz had uh, rehired his nemesis. So uh, he basically took Preminger off. Of, he, he said he couldn't direct it anymore and now he could only produce it. Um, and he assigned him the film Meantime Darling instead, which I haven't seen. So... The director, Ruben Mamoulian, finally agreed to come in um, and he ignored all of Preminger's production notes and uh, he hired an, an actor to play Waldo Leidegger uh, named Laird Krieger, mm-hmm. um, known for his portrayal of Jack the Ripper in the film The Lodger. Right. And notably, Laird was gay. Yes. yes, yeah, which is important because the Liger characters this is so flamboyant. is extremely gay. <laughs> yeah. So Preminger didn't like the casting because he felt like the audience would be able to tell immediately who the villain was because Laird Krieger had played Jack the Ripper. So it would be too obviously sinister. And he really wanted. Ah, uh, Clifton Webb, who ultimately did end up playing Lydegger. and he was a Broadway actor who had not appeared before cameras since 1930. Yeah, so he
2: fifteen years, right? Maybe.
1: So he had never been in a speaking a, a sound film, um, and at that time he was performing the Noel Coward play *Blythe Spirit* in L.A.
0: Mm -hmm.
2: Which is a pretty brazen move on his part to return to stage during the sound era, because that was kind of one of the greatest anxieties of actors around that time is, will my aura and persona be completely demolished by using my actual voice?
1: Mm, Yeah, that is interesting. Uh, Fox casting directors objected to Webb because he was extremely effeminate and but that was exactly what Preminger felt suited the character. So Preminger filmed a test screening of him delivering a monologue from the play he was in, and then the uh, the casting director saw that and they agreed that he was perfect for the role.
2: Yeah, and also um, Laird Krieger, one of the actors, and Clifton Webb, they were both gay. I guess I should have clarified earlier.
1: Okay, so Clifton Webb, I mean, I'm... Not surprised, but yeah, right. he's confirmed also gay, yes. so to speak. Yeah, that voice is really funny, right? Yeah, so Ruben Mamoulian had many problems with the cast and he was not really supportive of them during production. So eventually, Zenuk reluctantly agreed to let Preminger direct the film. So that's how we have the Laura that we know today,
2: mm-hmm. and I believe Preminger was. A fan of certain performances, such as those by Clifton Webb and Dame Judith Anderson, per the screen test, that he allowed those roles more space within the film. So, despite it being named Laura after the Gene Tierney character, it's more or less kind of a
1: Laura's friends situation. Right. Yeah. Definitely an ensemble piece. So. I thought this was interesting. Uh, The score, which is very iconic, was um, written by David Raskin, and it was inspired by a Dear John letter that he received from his wife the weekend he wrote the score.
2: I feel like I should be playing a tiny violin.
1: Right. (laughs) And also, just kind of random fact that I love, in 2005, a Bollywood remake of the film called Rog was released. So there is a Bollywood (laughs) version of Laura out there somewhere. So anything else that I didn't mention that you wanted to mention in the production? (laughs) No, I think you touched
2: on it as well as the release.
1: Okay, cool. Um, Oh, yeah. So the the film was received like pretty mainly positive reviews. And interestingly, I think when everybody thinks of this film, they now they think of Gene Tierney. But at the time when it came out, that was considered the weakest performance of Mm -hmm. the film. So we're somewhat validated by (laughs) By the critics of your. Right. And then I, I guess I have a larger question when we start to discuss the plot is, Is her kind of non-interesting, I mean, I'm trying to, the word is like on the tip of my tongue, her kind of...
2: Non-compelling. Yeah, Mm -hmm. like is that on
1: purpose? Because Mm -hmm. I feel like the film isn't really even about her so much. Right. It's interesting. We almost sense a tonal shift in her
2: performance because when Waldo gives sort of this story of how they first met, she was very aggressive in approaching him in sort of an opportunistic way to have him endorse a pen for the ad agency where she was a Girl Friday type. And through that persistence, he did follow up with her. But then from there on, she kind of
1: fades entirely. Right, right. So the film opens really being driven by Waldo Lydecker's voiceover, um, where he says, I rem- I shall never forget the weekend Laura died. Felt like I was the only living person in New York. Yeah. That's my favorite line in the movie, I think. And there are some good ones. Yeah, he's, I mean, everything he says in this movie is great. It's like you can't catch all of it on a first mm-hmm. viewing. So Waldo Leidecker is a, a columnist uh, and also a radio personality. Right. There's a little fusion and he's really engrossed
2: with crime and secrets in those columns but he seems to gather a very large reading among women in particular who are very much into his
1: stories of cops run amok and scandal and that's interesting because there's been so many think pieces out in recent years about women's obsession with true crime mm-hmm. uh, so yeah I don't really have a fully formed thought about mm-hmm. that but that's just interesting to me uh so He also says, I was the only one who really knew her. That kind of brings us in automatically to his narcissism surrounding Mm -hmm. Laura, uh, his delusions about her. Which is interesting because we're trying to frame
2: this character in our mind, but we don't necessarily even see him yet, but we're compelled to not like him.
1: Right, right. And of course, his like prissy voice Mm -hmm. immediately kind of sets him up as a villain (laughs) Uh, because of the historical nature of queer-coding villains. Uh, So a detective, Mark McPherson, Dana Andrews, comes to see Leideker and notices his clock, which Laura also has. This clock is a big part of the movie. His and hers. Yes. And he has this really fancy gay apartment. And... (laughs) I just I just take it for granted that this is a gay apartment. But to sort of describe it, it, it's just beautifully decorated, filled with art and artifacts. Yes. Among the objects he's particularly
2: precious about during the course of the film are the clocks, of course, a
1: vase, and I believe another masterpiece of some sort. Mm-hmm. And weren't you telling me that there was a note originally in the script that nodded more towards his gayness about his apartment.
2: Right, yes. I I consulted my begrudgingly tattered and torn copy of Vito Russell's The Celluloid Closet, and he notes that several lines were axed from the script, and I believe this was during the throes of the Hays Code, so Mm -hmm. it does make sense that those things would be
1: omitted. Right, I think there was one line in the script that says his apartment is beautiful too beautiful for a man like just little uh. asides there and Leideker. so this scene is so great where mcpherson walks into another room and leidecker is naked in this big marble bathtub it's amazing the um he has this little table, and it's not
2: simply one that is lying across his tub. Oh, no, no, no. It has a hinge, and he pushes it out of the way and stands up, and we see the detective, played by Dana Andrews, staring kind of at at Leideker yes. in the nude, and... And Leideker just commands him to fetch him a towel, yeah. and the
1: cop obliges him. It's <laughs> he, amaz- an amazing introduction to a character. It's amazing, and he also has this big fucking typewriter on this table, I know. <laughs> and he types while he's in the bath, and he mm-hmm. takes a bath like multiple times in this movie. Right. I-, I think we're supposed to assume that
2: he's typing the voiceover we just heard about being the only living person
1: in new york in the day laura died right right and yes yeah, i mean taking baths is gay culture obviously gosh <laughs> <laughs> showers uh, are out sorry yeah sorry <laughs> i have chronic pain <laughs> so he says to McPherson, and it's interesting because we immediately like they're foils to each other, right? The McPherson is like the all-American, brutish, cop, and Leideker is this fop, Mm -hmm. and who has a good bit of brain. So it's kind of brains versus bronze, right? Right. Set up. Right. Yeah. Immediately, and he says to McPherson, "I am the most misquoted man in America." So he's this controversial columnist. (laughs) Yes, as the cop is interrogating him, he pulls
2: out a statement that he had already given on Laura's death and reads it to the cop. It's really a hysterical scene, and and the cop is immediately, I think,
1: aware that he's in for more than he bargained for. Yes, he's like already exhausted his face. So Laura was murdered with a buckshot
2: gun. Oh, my country is going to come out right now. Do you you know what buckshot is? Nope. I don't know anything about guns. All right. That's a a decent place to be. (laughs) So when you open a rifle and you put in one of the plastic bullets, it's filled with tiny pieces rather than a solid bullet. So anything it enters, it sort of shreds through it like shrapnel okay right so So, that's sorry (laughs) there we go so (laughs) now it's interesting yes yes. so laura being shot with a buckshot gun means that she's kind of
1: entirely unrecognizable there's not just one wound oh that's significant Mm -hmm. okay okay that see i didn't get that at all that's why you gotta know about the gun hey (laughs) (laughs) y'all so he was and he Uh, McPherson points out that Laura was murdered with this buckshot gun in the same way that Leidegger has written about another murder in his column, but that that murder wasn't actually done with a buckshot gun, so it feels like he took artistic liberty with it, but also like, weird, you know, suspiciously portended Mm -hmm. her murder. Right? Um, It's very... Precluding or anticipating,
2: basically. Right. right. <laughs> yes. Very
1: noir. Yeah. There's a lot of like little complex, right. minute details yeah. about the murder. Right. So, Leidegger wants to accompany McPherson when he questions the other subjects, even though he knows he is one. Uh, McPherson asks this is always kind of funny to me that McPherson like allows him to do that too which I guess is just a conceit of film noir like yeah. you wouldn't have a movie if, if that right. wasn't happening
2: you have to kind of turn a blind eye or to play the neo North.
1: card one more time suspension of belief yeah <laughs> Uh, McPherson asks Leidegger if he was in love with Laura, and Leidegger rhapsodizes over how much Laura loved him and thought he was the best thing in the world, the Mm -hmm. best man in the world. So he's... People Magazine's man of the year. Yes. (laughs) Uh, McPherson and Leidegger visit uh, Anne Treadwell, who is played by Judith Anderson, Mm who is incredible. I love Judith Anderson. (laughs) Uh,
2: uh, Yes, I'm sure some of your listeners will be familiar with her for playing Miss Danvers, of course, and Hitchcock's
1: Rebecca. Yes, which I'm going to be doing on the podcast as well. (gasps) Hang tight. Yeah, and she was you were telling me she was a dyke in real life
2: yes there there are many speculations and what is it the sewing circle of yore and who she was acquainted with and how many times she saw dietrich per se under cloak and dagger mm. so Hot. interesting do you see stuff totally and it, i feel like there's a reason why this
1: audience is enticed and lured to that sort of character right McPherson asks Anne Treadwell, who's the one that found Laura's body, if she's in love with Shelby Carpenter, another suspect, (laughs) who's Laura's fiance. Shelby Carpenter would know what buckshot is. Right, because he's from Kentucky. Mm -hmm. Right. Okay, there you go. There's another little thing I missed.
2: And it's kind of a running joke. I think Walder makes a stabbing jab and says so something about him being a, having been a sharecropper.
1: <laughs> yes, that does that happens later. Um so Shelby Carpenter is played by Vincent Price. Mm-hmm. Interesting because I think most people are familiar with Vincent Price from the Roger Corman movies yeah. that he was in in the 60s and early 70s like Mask of the Red Death, The House of Usher, at uh, Wax Mm-hmm. House of Wax, yeah. right, where he's always a sinister villain and he's not that at all in this film. He's kind of like a and bumbling dope. Yeah, he's yeah, a dope. dope. He's a schmuck. Yeah. yeah, in this film. So it's kind of in, it's really interesting to see him in such a different character mm-hmm. than I'm used to, to seeing yeah. him in equally part dope and part womanizer yes yeah but also like gay
2: mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> with bad taste in alcohol yeah learn later oh, on, yeah. oh
1: yeah so he asks her if she's in love with shelby carpenter and uh leidegger seizes on this mm-hmm. tension and him and miss tread will ex- have a, a catty exchange which is very oh, funny oh,
2: yes it's so dramatic and we forget why we even here, we're just kind of immediately engrossed with those two presences on screen and desiring more and more oh, from them. they're both
1: stage actors mm-hmm. and they're both so good. Right. I refer to her as Judith Danvers here. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> that works. <It's> <laughs> right. McPherson questions Anne Treadwell about a series of deposits that her and Mr. Carpenter made before the murder that looks very suspicious. Vincent Price as Shelby enters and says that he has no motive for killing Laura, and that they were to be married this week, actually. Hmm. And Leideker says that Laura was actually unsure about the engagement and had confided that in him. Hmm. Do I detect jealousy there? Right. <laughs> McPherson, Leideker, and Shelby go to Laura's apartment. It's so funny to me. This is what I really was stuck on this rewatch of like how they all kind of move together as a group. <laughs> and yeah, and they're always like in either Anne Treadwell Leidegger's or Laura's apartment right. it's
2: super interior, yes. No predictable third man type nor exteriors um at all here, and yeah, it's completely it's almost as though it is a stage.
1: Yeah, that's that Mm -hmm. was the impression I was getting. It felt like it was being played to us Mm -hmm. in a way that a lot of other noir films that I watched during November, it was really different Mm -hmm. in that way.
2: One of the things that also makes that uh, it's almost a challenge because Leidecker's apartment and Lars are so similar because he had stakes and her clothing choices and the people she socialized with and, and weighed heavily. And
1: sometimes I struggled to tell where we are <laughs> i was thinking the same thing and i guess that has to be intentional in some way mm-hmm. like they're right you can't tell they're the opulence of their apartments are very similar mm-hmm. very... to the point where they regularly exchange decor yes yeah. yes <laughs> oh <laughs> my laws. god this is so gay <laughs> uh, Leideker is there's a theme in the in the movie where he's always pissed at McPherson for calling Laura a dame, because mm-hmm. uh, McPherson refers to women as as dames many times. He's a mm-hmm. brute, basically. Yeah, I think at one point
2: he mutters something like a dame uptown got a a fox. Stole out of me or something like that. Right. I, it's yeah. like, I
1: guess, akin to bitch almost. Mm-hmm. Like,
2: kind of yeah,
1: <laughs> like that's not something that a nice man would say. Yeah. And, and you can't really tell if is just looking for a fight or if
2: he did indeed bring out his proto-feminist soapbox and say, that's
1: not a way to treat a woman. <laughs> right, right. This is when we first see the portrait of Laura hanging on the wall, mm-hmm. which... Originally, the painting was done by um, – um, oh, my God, I already forget his name. I feel brain dead. Mol- Molmignon, the director, uh, the their first director. It was done by his mm-hmm. wife. Huh? But as soon as Otto Preminger came on to direct, he replaced it. And it's a photograph of Jean Tierney with some oil paint added to it mm. to give it a – uncanny quality basically. The Instagram filter of the day. Yes, exactly. Um,
2: Do you know what ever happened to the original painting? I don't. I wonder. I have some detective work to
1: do. Right. I'm sure it's in someone's collection (laughs) (laughs) somewhere. McPherson says of the painting, it's not bad but is obviously enraptured with it. Yes. McPherson also plays Laura theme on a record player <laughs> and uh, Shelby says that was her favorite song. I have a note here that says what is up with Vincent Price's Southern accent because it's just really funny to me. I don't mm-hmm. know. It's like not convincing to me. Yeah, I think it's
2: just his actual voice bleeding on to something that sounds like Southern gentility or right. like someone who descended from antebellum opulence. But but it's fallen. It's it's fallen and it, it almost works because that character um has fallen on hard times seemingly and relies heavily upon Anne to kind of be his mother. So so it's unclear how much of his like posturing is 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 rooted to reality versus put on. So the fallibility in the accent almost works for me
1: that's really that's interesting, actually, and gives me a better appreciation for what Vincent Price is doing there. Yeah, I know otherwise it blows. <laughs> <laughs> and, yeah, he's kind of this like, southern gothic character like very kind of faulkner-esque mm-hmm. almost like a he's, man with a past yeah and like burdened he, heart <laughs> right right he's a man with a past they're looking for the keys to laura's country home which shelby believes is in her apartment somewhere um, and they find them in a drawer next to her bed, and McPherson says the key wasn't in the drawer yesterday. And Shelby confesses that he put it there, and he didn't want to give it to the de- to the detective in front of Leideker because he knows he has it out for him. And they almost get into a bitch fight. <laughs> McPherson keeps playing with this puzzle. <laughs> it's like a. Pinball game. Yeah. yeah. And uh Leideker tells him to stop, but McPherson says it keeps him calm. It which... makes him feel in control, or you have to have control to play the game. And mm.
2: he almost kind of implies that Leideker somehow kind of
1: lacks fortitude. Right. Interesting. Does he bring the, that game out again? I feel like that doesn't happen again. Oh. I I felt like it was gonna be sub- significant yeah he does you can see him looking
2: down in scenes but the the motif of it doesn't really la- last okay. past then
1: yeah leidegger and mcpherson go to a restaurant that leidegger says was his and laura's favorite place
2: what a lesbian
1: right and <laughs> this is when we get now the the flashbacks of how mm-hmm. leidegger and laura met yes so her pushiness and approaching him right the girl who walked into my life at the Algonquin Hotel five years before, <laughs> and she approaches Leidiger at his table while he's eating lunch at the hotel about an advertising opportunity on behalf of a firm that she's working for who will pay him $5,000 to endorse a pen. Leidiger <laughs> is mean to her. He's sexist. <laughs>
2: And that's a decent amount of money. Yes. Yeah. Especially like, in 1944. I know, you're in the throes of World War II. There's another moment where he says he's paid 50 cents a word. And I'm just like, even without inflation, that's pretty good yeah. for a little boy with a column.
1: <laughs> right, right. I mean, yeah, that's so completely different from how I we know, know it to be now. But... Yeah, the $5,000 is still a lot of money, yeah. <laughs> even now, yeah, and he's really horrible to her and dismissive of her, and he says something about, like, oh, you think because you're a woman that, you know, people want to talk to you, basically, um, he refuses the offer, says he hates pens, he uses a quill, mm-hmm. and... Laura admits that the ad company doesn't know about her bid for him and that this was her idea, so she's very plucky. Yeah,
2: and she put together the mock-up all on her own, and it seems like his narcissism is kind of tickled
1: by that, by her focus on him and it being her choice. Right, and he he seemed he's intrigued by Mm -hmm. her, and Laura is shocked by his selfishness, considering that he writes about people so eloquently and he says will you kindly consider this character analysis elsewhere (laughs) i love that line one of many zingers yes laura says she feels sorry for him and walks away and he's intrigued and feels like he has to see her again right away so he shows up at her job
2: Mm-mm-mm. And and that entire scene of him showing up, it, it doesn't, you kind of get a sense of where she is within this hierarchy, one, because she's like at a table with a bunch of other women pasting what seems to be together a layout of a newspaper with the advertisements. So I'm, I'm not perfectly clear of her work, but to even give you a bigger indicator of this hierarchy, there's a little boy who's sort of serving as the administrative assistant or doorkeeper or bellhopper, like a combination of those things. And he's the one who answers the door when Leidecker comes in. And obviously Leidecker doesn't take the, give the boy much thought. He like tells him he's going to like bust his skull with his cane or something of that nature, but in a very dandy way. I can't remember the line verbatim and then they both go over to Laura's station just just freely to talk to her and that conversation is also very sort of pushy and i i guess very uncharacteristic of how we
1: work or hope we could work today right you know she she's kind of dismissive of him until he agrees to do the endorsement mm-hmm. um and everything is just he he humbly apologizes and everything he says is just very gay and witty Mm -hmm. and um he's you know charming her as this potential fag hag uh i think i find it so funny that in the next sequence we're like I supposed to believe that they're in a romantic relationship of some
2: kind oh yeah y- you can't it's yeah. just like it isn't computing it's like if it I guess I see it more as like a beautiful friendship yeah that's like what the most you can see a beautiful if not fraud of course
1: right and this is where we get into this sequence this which you kind of referred to when we were watching it as like a pygmalion almost mm-hmm. like he's you know t- telling McPherson with this voiceover about how he shaped and molded Laura and he catapulted her career. It's so melodrama. Mm-hmm. I think that that's some of
2: the early feedback on the movie and in and, and scholarship today is whether this counts as a melodrama that was kind of infused mm. with noir or mm. a softer noir. Right. Right. But it's very flamboyant. And I think for me, it kind of, again, because the, when I did re-re-re-watched this a couple of years ago was because I'd seen Phantom Thread. So this sort of man sculpting this woman, even though he does value certain characteristics of her and refused to have anyone call her a dame, (laughs) he still kind
1: of exerts his control. It's a very uh, unique brand of misogyny that gay men are very Mm -hmm. good at. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) Putting a beautiful woman on a pedestal In such a way where it feels like worship, but it's actually a cage. Mm -hmm. And it's totally he requires that
2: mutual exchange of that sort of adoration or esteem. Even
1: when Laura says, oh, I did this on my own, you know, it puffs up his chest. Right, right. And he he really takes note to mention to McPherson that Laura always deferred to his judgment and taste. Mm, yikes. Uh, right, <laughs> and that he dressed her and decided her hairstyles and introduced her to everyone important um, and that she rose to the top because she had an authentic magnetism. <laughs> so he recognizes her personality as well as her beauty <laughs> um, and I think probably... F- you know, maybe feels like I, I don't know, like he could be her almost.
2: Mm-hmm. He uses um an, an almost eugenic phrase at one point because he talks about her inheritance, and then the things
1: that are innate to her, oh, like right. her you know beautiful be- Aryan good looks. Right. Yeah. yeah. Yes, she's quite Aryan. <laughs> <laughs> so she became well known. As well known as Waldo Leideker's walking stick, he says, and his white mm-hmm. carnation. And and
2: for clarification, there are scenes where he kind of is dramatically wearing this white flower in the buttonhole of his sport coat lapel, even so much as to rip one off of his own flowers at one point and just
1: stuff it in. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, at Tuesday nights, I think they dine in alone, but then she started canceling. And that was like the beginning of the end. (laughs) Uh, Leidegger went to her apartment building at night. It's snowing. It's very dramatic. And he saw her through the window and she was with another man. And Mm. it was Jacoby who had recently painted her portrait. And that night Waldo writes a scathing review of Jacoby's Mm-hmm. Uh, art in his marble bathtub. I know.
2: He's a very generous editor. Yeah. You know. Is this a true crime column? Is this a I
1: know, that's beat what reporting? I was thinking, what is <laughs> this? Is this a love letter? Right. This- right. What does he do? <laughs> like it's sometimes gossip, it's sometimes reviews. It's almost always opportunistic. Yeah. Because- it's whatever he wants it to be. He's at that level, I guess. They're were others like Jacobi, um, well, after he writes his review, apparently Laura never regarded him seriously again. And there were others, uh, but they never lasted until Laura meets Shelby Carpenter at a party thrown by Anne Treadwell. Mm. Shelby is Rich Gentility from Kentucky. He's a Southern gentleman who has, like you said earlier, fallen on hard times. Um, you There's kind of there's this interesting interaction he has with like the kitchen help. Uh, that shows how comfortable he is interacting with the help, basically. Mm-hmm.
2: And also women. Yes. Because this older woman approaches him
1: and he definitely indulges
2: her affection.
1: Right. And her food. Right. And yeah. uh, He keeps saying, you know, when are you going to marry me? Right. Mm-hmm. Um, Laura and Shelby have a cigarette alone on the balcony and Shelby tells her how he isn't wealthy, he just kind of appears that way, and he really needs a job. And Leideker intercepts, and he comes out, and he says one of my favorite lines, which is, I cannot stand these morons any longer. If you do not come <laughs> with me this instance, I shall run amok, <laughs> which is now what I want to say whenever I leave a party. And he
2: whips out his smelling
1: salts. Not really. <laughs> just wait for it. <laughs> uh, Laura offers Shelby a job before she leaves. So... Now Shelby is working for Laura. And I wanted to discuss with you Laura mm-hmm. as a working woman. Right. It seems
2: like after that initial base touch with Leideker, her career was decidedly on the ascent based on his personal connections and her own gumption. And and it's really interesting when kind of Shelby not Shelby, but um Southern Shelby, yes, yes. Southern Boy comes into the picture and immediately begins working for her. And so it's 1944. We're in the thick of World War II. I know women are taking on higher caliber positions in the workforce. However, this is really interesting to see this potential romantic interest be her subordinate.
1: Yeah. And yeah, I, I, that really struck me on this rewatch and it also seems to be a if not common, something familiar from film noir of like the woman who's occupying a role that she's maybe not supposed Mm -hmm. to occupy. Yeah. And how it kind of props her up as this almost dangerous Mm -hmm. figure. I'm thinking of a movie I watched called A Dishonored Woman starring Hedy Lamarr, Mm. where she plays like a high-powered fashion editor and... Um, it's just kind of shows how she's not a typical woman. Right, like, definitely. She's a part.
2: And because her finely manicured talons were out so strongly in the beginning, you sort of anticipate that to continue and to exaggerate this occupational situation in which she finds herself in and to see them kind of interplay. Per film Nora, of course, but um she doesn't really she starts to fade, if anything. From I agree. The f- forefront of her own story at
1: this point. Yeah, yeah. And this is when she starts to become more of a symbol for these other characters than an actual person. Mm-hmm. With th- all of their projections yeah. on her. Uh now so Shelby is working for Laura and Going off of this career woman theme we're talking about, there's this interesting part where they're girl boss. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> she's a girl boss. <laughs> there's this part where they're at a another restaurant and um, Shelby is flirting with her and and you know he's like, oh, we could have beautiful lunches every day, like, and she says. What about work? Beautiful work. Day after day after day. <laughs> She's really and she mentions her career a couple times after this, too. This is like mm-hmm. kind of the thing about her personality that sticks out to me the most is how ambitious she is. Right. Uh, Shelby, they continue to flirt and dance as Leideker creepily spies on them <laughs> from across the restaurant. Yes. And salks. <laughs> So, Leideker confronts Laura and says that he had Shelby privately investigated and that he has a checkered past where he's been accused of stealing and writing false checks. Mm-hmm. And once again, we see Leideker using his occupational resources to manipulate Laura's autonomy. Mm-hmm. She's not having it though. Mm-hmm. She dismisses him, but Leideker says he's running around that Shelby is also running around with a model from Laura's office, mm-hmm. Diane Redfern. And she says, I'm closer to despising you than I ever thought I would be. And that her and Shelby are going to be married next week. Uh, Shelby gets more play than like
2: a mask in Bushwick. It's. <laughs> how (laughs) it's like one of those situations where you're somewhat baffled by the politics of desirability yeah well he's tall yeah that's
1: right well we were watching it i was like vincent price is so tall yeah Yeah. he's tall and but yeah he's like such a schmuck he has nothing Mm. to offer
2: i think more broadly in this movie if if you try to take romantic relationships out of the equation, it makes more sense.
1: Honestly, yeah. I don't even see these people as being romantically involved at all. I see her as choosing a new fag pal. Mm -hmm. New interior decorator. Yeah, exactly. And they're like having a bitch fight over it. (laughs) Um, I hope everybody remembers that we're gay. We're not. (laughs) I, I feel like I sound so... So homophobic.
2: (laughs) Can I say fag? Yeah.
1: (laughs) Right. Um, So Laura goes to, oh, also Leideker shows Laura a cigarette case that he found in a pawn shop that Laura gifted Shelby. Mm -hmm. It's kind of showing that he's, you know, not, he doesn't really care about her. And Laura goes to call Shelby, but Leideker says that he won't be home. He's at Miss Treadwell's his other side piece of house. Know. Uh and Laura doesn't want to believe it, but Leideker escorts her to Anne's house, and he is indeed there eating a suspiciously romantic dinner with Anne. Mm.
2: Right. See, interesting. You read it as romantic. I wrote it read it as
1: conspiratorial. Right. Well, yeah. I guess I, I thought it was supposed to be coded as romantic because she's in mm-hmm. this, like, very pretty outfit. Right. Um, But, like we just said, none of these relationships make sense as romantic no. relationships. Mm-hmm. It's not... I think, at the time, it could only be written that way because of the, the time and place we're at in mm-hmm. history. But right. I think if it were to be now...
2: Mm-hmm. It would not only have the parts that were omitted right. To make it appropriate for release It would have even more, so much more
1: Yeah, absolutely So
2: Leidecker L- would have a G-string Leidecker <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> would it. have a
1: little boy toy I know, Yeah. a chest harness Yeah <laughs> Or would he be like, would he hate on <gasps> curves that, yeah that's a good
2: point i feel and like, like he a, would be like
1: a high and mighty mary a buddha judge yeah supporter yeah for sure. yeah. yeah something like that oh. yeah and shelby would be like more freewheeling and mm-hmm. that's why laura would would be dropped right. <laughs> right um laura i feel like is a like a fruit fly and <laughs> <laughs> i feel like Anne is a dyke but Mm, that's that's sort of the vibes yeah, I'm getting. Yeah,
2: it's interesting because Anne also wields her pocketbook quite a lot, and we see that that might be an incentive for Shelby to amble up to her. But at the same time, she suffers no fools,
1: right? Yeah, she's yeah, she's very tell it like it is. Laura leaves upset, and Lydeker says in his voiceover that he was supposed to have dinner with Laura the night that she died to hear about this juicy meeting that she had with (laughs) Diane Redfern but she called him and told him that she decided to go to her country home for a few days to think things over that that was the last time he heard from her Mm -hmm. and I wanted to ask you how much of this Laura story do we think is true like are these mostly projections on his part Uh. of how important he was in her life
2: Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I think she was giving something back to him in terms of like either the memories of the type of flattery she used to kind of dote him with Mm. or whether or not that was something that continued up until this point. But I, I do think he's receiving something and maybe that could be Laura because she is so muted just Knowing how to render herself null to be appealing to the most
1: wide variety of mm, suitors—that's a good point too. Yeah, she's very she's kind of a shapeshifter. Mm-hmm. She changes her persona a few times in this movie. Mm-hmm. So McPherson and Leidiger leave the restaurant, and McPherson seems very suspicious of Leidiger's story. He makes a call to find out if Laura drank a scotch called Black Pony. And this is where, I think that's a strip club in Atlanta. No, it's Pink Pony. Oh, Pink Pony. Okay. (laughs) Um, Both good names for a strip club. Mm -hmm. I don't think it's copyrighted. (laughs) I don't know. Like, is Black Pony even a real scotch? I kind of want to try it now. (laughs) So now we meet Bessie, who's your favorite (gasps) character. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. Yeah. What is the actress's
2: name? Bessie is played by Dorothy Adams and I did a little bit of light research on her and she was mostly a TV actress more minor even though her performance in this movie is incredible and I'll definitely be like rooting around through her filmography at some point but she was on the show Gunsmoke okay yes and she has a face for a western she's very very strong bones Mm -hmm. and definitely not Wary of going there on screen with
1: intensity. Right. McPherson questions Bessie, who's Laura's maid, who is really feisty and anti-cop mm. in the in this great, great way. Right. She's so skeptical of McPherson.
2: Mm-hmm. And she's also very much Aligning herself with Lara right out the gate.
1: Yeah, she's super gay for her. Mm-hmm. She says she would have worked for her for free, and yeah, which is, is intense. Hey, that's it's really, really intense. intense. Yeah, <laughs> which you know you could read as super gay, but you could also read it as like class propaganda.
2: Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, yeah, oh, the, the over invested
1: help of course. Right, right, devoted. right. Well, um, meaning
2: handmaiden. Yes,
1: <laughs> and. She says it's ridiculous that she's a suspect because she loved Laura Uh, McPherson questions Bessie about the black pony scotch and Bessie admits that to taking the bottle out of Laura's room and hiding it in the cabinet because she didn't want anyone to get the wrong idea about Laura because obviously the bottle belonged to a man (laughs) who was in her room because Laura would never drink something like that. Laura would not be staggering around
2: sloshed as she turned off the 27. (laughs) Table lamps in her Manhattan (laughs) apartment. Yeah, no fewer than (laughs) twenty-seven table
1: lamps. (laughs) Shelby, Anne, and Leideker show up. It's always my favorite when they're all on screen. Yeah, and McPherson dismisses Bessie, and they discuss what they're going to do with Laura's things, which I found so like scavenger like (laughs) like she just died. And and
2: this is the thing where I'm a bit baffled because do you know why Anne? Has stakes in I those possessions. I was going to ask the same thing. Is yeah. it because her son, her her fake son Shelby, obviously is tasked with her estate, one assumes, oh. so that she
1: stands to benefit from Shelby's spoils? I guess so. Right? Yeah, but it doesn't make sense to me because Shelby and Laura weren't married. Yeah. You would think that they, if if they were going to kill her, that they would wait till after they marry. I know, Hey, it was 1944. Yeah. He had tubs. <laughs> yeah. Oh my God, that's so horrifying. I know. She has no family or anything. <laughs> <laughs> um. So they discuss what they're going to do with her things, and Leidiger claims some things that he gave to Laura, like a vase. Yes, the vase. Yes. And he t- tries. To march out the doorway. Yes. And McPherson stops him. Mm-hmm. And a uh, right. very large clock, a wall clock. Wall clock. What do we think of the... Well, maybe we should talk about it when when we get more into the clocks, about the symbolism mm-hmm. of clocks. Right. Uh, Mc, McPherson stalks around Laura's gorgeous apartment, racking his brain for answers and staring at her portrait. And again, Leidegger comes by... Uh, and he says he objects to McPherson reading Laura's private letters. Mm-hmm. He accuses him of falling for Laura, even though she's dead. And he tries to—he says he's in, she, He must be in love with the portrait. Um, and he tries to give McPherson the portrait of Laura, in mm-hmm. basically trying to bribe him in exchange for his things. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> um, and McPherson dismiss McPherson dismisses him. So. McPherson stares longingly at the portrait of Laura. So Leideker is correct. He is yeah, developing feelings for her. Really bizarre. <laughs> it's really bizarre. You mean it's like the ultimate objectification mm-hmm. almost like yeah. he's in love with the painting. Mm-hmm. Just- A replica. Right. And
2: it's interesting because I think Leideker says at one point that the painting doesn't capture her true essence so leidecker apparently sees something in laura that
1: mcpherson does not to assumes as only a a gay man could Mm -hmm. to the best of his ability (laughs) right right. laura arrives home so she's actually alive just like one of the huge turning points of the film (laughs) just
2: casually in her
1: yeah, it's actually quite a casual right. so, yeah. scene. There's no music or anything. <laughs> mm-hmm. She just walks through the door, and McPherson's face is intact, nary a buckshot. <laughs> right, McPherson wakes up and sees her, and he's stunned, <laughs> and he tells her that everyone thinks she's dead, uh, and she says she's just been in the country. So, who was murdered in Laura's apartment?
2: No idea. Right. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, So that's the big question right Mm now. Yeah. And also, who drank the Black Pony? Right. Mark McPherson, while he was waiting on Laura to get home, he gradually made his way through several bottles of her liquor.
1: Right. (laughs) Right. (laughs) (laughs) McPherson questions Laura and Shelby about his relationship with Diane Redfern, who is the victim, Mm -hmm. who we might remember from earlier. Lara
2: was scheduled to meet and that she may have been a model for right, Lara's company. Right.
1: He also asks if she has decided to marry Shelby or not. Mm-hmm. And that doesn't strike me as a qu- question that's a part of his right. interrogation. Yes. He's <laughs> just personally interested. Mm-hmm. And she says that she has decided against it. Mm-hmm. Which opens the gates for McPherson. So we,
2: as we have more and more questions of the dead body we also
1: have more questions about mcpherson's motives right and he kind of gives this like little smile when she says that she had decided not Mm -hmm. to marry shelby he's not a very animated man but he definitely let one loose then yeah i mean he's this the straight man Mm -hmm. (laughs) of the film for sure and i mean him and Laura, like when they're on screen alone later, I like couldn't care less. I know my relationship <laughs> to the screen becomes like Teflon, Yeah,
2: just like, I just cannot
1: penetrate. Yeah, cannot. <laughs> it does. Whenever it gets into the, like the hetero romance, I'm like, mm-hmm. okay, anyway, back to the weirdos, back to the weirdo <laughs> friends. Uh, So he tells her not to leave the house or use the phone. And she goes for the phone as soon as he leaves. And then stops herself and looking after him kind of longingly. Mm-hmm. We also see that McPherson, he's with his partner, uh, his detective partner, and he's tapped her phone. And right. he hears that her and Shelby are planning to meet up that night. So on this dark and stormy night, McPherson and his partner tail Shelby and Laura. So it was not Waldo Leideker
2: that Laura was anticipating a call from or
1: to. Right. Yeah. It was Shelby. Yeah. McPherson trails Shelby to Laura's country home and finds him trying to take the buck shotgun. <laughs> <this> the shotgun. <laughs> <laughs> and the, the same weapon that killed the victim. Yes. And McPherson accuses Shelby of the murders. And Shelby actually admits that he found Diane Redfern's body in Laura's apartment. Mm. And that he didn't call the police because he wanted to protect Laura, because he thought that she murdered her.
2: Why would Laura murder an understudy? <laughs>
1: Out of jealousy, I guess, <laughs> is the logic mm. because she was Shelby's side piece. Yes. Yeah. Yes. But she doesn't strike me as somebody mm-hmm. who's that jealous, particularly. Next, the next day, McPherson is at Laura's again, who says she always dreamed of having a career. So again, she mentions her career. <laughs> Bessie comes in and is shocked to see Laura (laughs) and her acting in this scene is really great. Oh,
2: it's so amazing and awful. Yeah, yeah.
1: (laughs) So she weeps
2: over Laura and they make contact and Bessie is certain that she's not a ghost. And Laura gives her a doting hug and then... Basically, puts her to work making eggs. And I, I misheard that line wh- when Laura kind of tells Bessie, Now get to work, because I thought she was saying, Oh, I'll make eggs for you, Bessie. You're no. silver so
1: No, no, no. no. Oh she gosh. was like, Now make us some eggs and bake it. <laughs> Like, okay. They, they just treat her like she has no feeling. Yes, yeah, so basically. She does not
2: resist. She's off
1: to the races with yeah, the eggs. Yeah. yeah. I mean, even she even starts to serve when she thinks Laura's dead. She starts to serve McPherson, mm-hmm. getting him things. Yeah, it's
2: pretty horrifying. Right,
1: right. So Shelby shows up and says that his lawyer told him that anything he said the night before was under duress and that, of course, none of it was true. <laughs> and so he's backing out of his confession Leidegger shows up at the apartment and f- and faints <laughs> when he sees
2: that Laura is alive. <laughs> oh my gosh. The fainting that he almost all but
1: promised to do at the party when Laura would not leave finally happens it's here. It's so good. It's very extensive. I mean, how often do you see a man faint in film? Like, yeah. very rarely. It has to be after impact and like a violent scene. Yes. And even then,
2: it's not a true faint. It's just right. like a little... It's, it's either a faint... Like Waldo does, or it's a concussion, right? You know, I mean, he
1: swoons in this mm-hmm. scene,
2: like no. passes yes. out. his carnation and his lapel all but
1: wilts. <laughs> <laughs> so Leideker tells McPherson to arrest Shelby who makes this gay joke about Leideker, saying, you know, something like get back on all fours. That's the mm. only time that you shut up. Or, yeah. Like, or the, that's the only thing you're good at. Yeah, it, it, yeah. It's, 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 it's the such only such a- time you keep your mouth oh. shut. That's like, <laughs> <That's> what- <laughs> that is so, oh. that is a gay joke. Yeah.
2: It could, it could mean 27 different things, all of which are gay.
1: <laughs> yeah. And it's, it functions so well because he's taught, he's a, talking about him fainting, but not really. Mm-hmm. Like, he, yeah. it's it's a double thing going on. Then he, uh Leidegger says that while he was resting in the bedroom, he actually called a bunch of people that they know to come over and celebrate Laura's return. <laughs> and <laughs> Laura is very annoyed. Everyone moves very quickly.
2: Yeah. <laughs> including Bessie. <laughs> right.
1: In the 40s, yeah. I don't know, maybe people, let's... Like people show up at each other's houses, but <laughs> where like, else are they gonna see each other? Um, at Laura's party, Anne takes Shelby aside and begs him to marry her. So obviously, they have a, re- a yes, kind of relationship where she's like kind of his sugar mama,
2: right? It, it's interesting because her begging isn't; she is she's bargaining with him, definitely. But at the same time, it has so much dignity. It does. In it, and it's so clear that she's in control. Yes.
1: Of it's, a lot It's not situation. sad at all. Yeah. It's just kind of like, come on. Right now. Like, you know what this is. Yeah. And her hats with the gauze in front of her face in these scenes. Too. So good. Yeah. I love her outfits. Mm-hmm. Laura asks Shelby why he went to the cottage last night. And he says to hide the gun. Uh, and Laura and Anne are in the bedroom alone now. I really love this scene. Mm-hmm. It's one of my favorite scenes. And Anne tells Laura that she should leave Shelby alone, and that Shelby and, and Anne are perfect together because I'm not a nice person, and neither is he. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I love that line. Yeah, and
2: it, it's very real. It's very indeed. real. Yeah, and yeah. It, it's just such an intimate moment. I think it's probably the only one you have actually two women mm-hmm. on screen at the same time, and it's just secluded in this powder room, this sphere of femininity, and I imagine there's makeup being applied and, yeah, and there a is. cigarette yeah. being smoked. And it's just, it's Nord, it's greatest. Yes. And also Dame Judith Anderson at her greatest too. She's so good. In a scene where she's conveying one thing through word, but depicting another
1: with her body. Right. And it, I kind of wanted to talk about just briefly this scene reminds me it's a great barometer for analyzing scenes between two women characters um it will it's let me reword that so we have this concept of the Bechtel test right mm-hmm. and these two women this scene definitely does not pass the Bechtel test yeah. but That kind of reminds me of why the Bechdel test is not a great barometer Mm -hmm. for judging scenes between women because (laughs) they are talking about a man, quote unquote, but there's so much more going on. Yes. Uh,
2: The Bechdel test also doesn't afford us any sort of quality control because it's so much about quantity over quality, which is sometimes a, a pitfall of feminist discourse, especially
1: in film. Absolutely. That's a great, great way to put it. The phone rings at the party, and McPherson answers it dramatically, and the party stops all around him to hear what he says, and he says that he's about to arrest a suspect, and he approaches Laura, and she accepts her arrest gracefully. And Bessie does not. (laughs) uh, Bessie is not happy, Mm -hmm. but she says no calm down, Bessie, yes. and go get my things. Yeah, I know,
2: exactly, <laughs> Yeah, that verbatim, yeah. while she's shielding Lara with her probably, I don't know, four-foot-nine body. Yeah.
1: <laughs> McPherson and, oh, before that, Lidegger, uh is kind of like rhapsodizing about how the case will be sensational and he's going to get her acquitted. Mm-hmm. And McPherson says it's almost as if he wants her to be tried for murder. Yeah, and then write about it. Yeah, and write about it. <laughs> Uh, McPherson and Shelby have words because McPherson says it should have been him that was shot. Right. And uh, sh- when Shelby tries to defend himself, <laughs> McPherson punches him in the stomach <laughs> and Shelby falls backwards and Anne comforts him and it's like a very gay moment for me. Yes,
2: it's <laughs>
1: just... <laughs> mommy, that's yeah. all I
2: can say. Yeah, and mommy. is definitely
1: the, the nurture despite being so stoic at times right mcpherson takes laura down to the station this scene makes me glaze over but it's important mm-hmm. <laughs> And he, there's bright
2: lighting yeah. that she
1: demands mcpherson turn off
2: right <laughs> and he in-
1: interrogates her mm-hmm. and after like a bit of back and forth he tells her that he doesn't actually think that she did it and mm-hmm. he didn't even really book her and he just wants everyone to think that he thinks right. that
2: right. This is another one of his fake ass interrogations too, because of the, all the questions he's asking are kind of a fusion of her romantic life and the murderer. Yep, mm-hmm. it's creepy for yeah. sure. So, whose creepiness at this point are you preferring? Mm, good question, because-, because we have
1: three archetypes of creeps. Mm-hmm, yes, yeah. Can we go through them? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So we get McPherson, which is like the typical jealous. Brutus, straight man creep, mm-hmm.
2: and then you have the eugenic Leideker, mm-hmm. who is
1: equally narcissistic and suppressive, and then we have Shelby, who I actually think I might prefer the most because he's a user and a womanizer, but I think he also, him and Laura have a, maybe a more intimate relationship, mm-hmm. like they actually know each other and talk, and yeah. it is he. I think it's he's narcissistic but like a self-aware narcissist
2: (laughs) it's like the the easiest heterosexual pill to swallow i guess i'm thinking i'm imagining each of them as sort of a boss level in a video game
1: and it's which one (laughs) if you had to defeat one of them shelby would probably be the easiest oh absolutely because he doesn't take himself or anything seriously (laughs) um whereas i think leidegger and mcpherson both take themselves really seriously yeah totally he's just kind of a fool shelby (laughs) um and he's so easily bossed around by the women around him too greater chances of survival yes uh so there's a lot there's some romantic tension between them now um mcpherson and laura and he mcpherson he takes Laura home and then he goes to Lydeker's apartment and he lets himself in and Lydeker is actually a Laura's apartment and he's irate because she's obviously infatuated with McPherson mm-hmm. and he insists that her and Laura will be back together again soon. <laughs> uh, like, okay, dude. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs>
2: it's like informing you. <laughs> it's like yeah. courtesy call. And then this is also one of those moments where I'm like, whose apartment are we
1: in right now? That's, yeah, it's <laughs> yeah. really confusing. It's like, who's intruding on whose space? <laughs> right. Yeah. McPherson comes back and says he tested Laura's shotgun and that it isn't the murder weapon. Mm. And Leideker is skeptical and thinks, and he says he thinks McPherson is trying to catch her off guard and get her into a confession or something. Uh, Lydeker accuses Laura of being swayed by a lean body and a handsome face. <laughs> His exact words. Yes, yes right. <laughs> and Laura finally tells him off and tells him to leave. Mm-hmm. This is where her claws come out yeah, one more time. She's finally ready to get rid of him. Mm-hmm. And even then, it isn't that intense of a, a friend breakup. I think she pities him. Mm-hmm. I don't, I think she's too pities him too much yeah. to be mad at him, yeah. honestly. Mm-hmm. Uh, is she, and he says, You know to enjoy your a disgusting earthy relationship, (laughs) and that line is so funny to me. It is. I know. It's like we should. I don't know. Revive this a disgusting earthy (laughs) relationship. Yeah. McPherson and Laura find a shotgun in the clock that Laura that Mm. Leidiger gifted to Laura. Very um, handy with the decor, yes. Leidegger. <laughs> Lots of surprises. Yes. <laughs> he puts the pieces together and he realizes that Leideker shot Diane Redfern because he thought she was Laura coming through the door. Mm. So I did want to take a second to talk about what you think of the symbolism of clocks in this film. Mm. And I didn't know. That's a good question. Yeah, I didn't know how I felt.
2: Right. I know... I. Up into, I was trying to be mindful with our screening and kind of count the longing shots of them. Hmm. And I think it's, at best, it's probably um, some metaphor for human life. And near the end, as the film reaches its climax,
1: the only thing you can hear is the ticking of the clock, which is very reminiscent of a heartbeat. Right, right. Yeah, yeah human life or even because we have that that long flashback sequence, which dominates so much of the movie, just like... The nature of relationships ending mm-hmm. is another and time thing marching I thought on about. Right. yeah time marching on exactly so laura is in shock uh, and she says she feels as if she kind of killed diane and she feels guilty because she should have ended things with leidegger a long time ago mm-hmm. meanwhile leidegger is like in the hallway listening <laughs> <I> <laughs> at know. the door and Laura says that she has been protecting Shelby, not because she loves him or anything, but because she knows that he didn't do it because he's so stupid.
0: <laughs>
1: How could he have pulled it off? Yeah, she says this in very polite terms. Yes, Nevertheless. yes exactly. <laughs> and McPherson leaves and locks the door but not before him and Laura share a kiss for the first time, mm-hmm. which is like the most chaste, boring kiss. I, I know I miss it half of the time, which uh-huh. is great. It yeah, keeps up the edifice. well. I like noir to me are so known for their like passionate kisses. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and this is just like nothing. It's just not what the movie's about. Which is no, they're kind interesting. of interesting pretenses. There, it's yeah. like we're stuck within this framework, so. We're going to work with it. Yeah, exactly. Lidecker creeps softly back into the apartment and takes the gun from the clock. And now his voiceover comes in again. And I guess it's a radio broadcast that Laura is listening to.
2: Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, we kind of toggle between her parlor area and Lidecker kind of approaching and McPherson and his team hastily trying to get back because they... Weren't on top of things. And so this is kind of where the tension meets a boiling point.
1: Yes. And yes, she's listening to him on the radio. And listening to him, which I found kind of sad and sweet. Yeah. Like kind of missing her friend almost. Yeah. But having good boundaries. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Um, You know, and knowing he's the murderer and, Mm -hmm. you know, kind of mourning that. Yeah. And he starts to talk about how love is this great motivator in his broadcast Mm -hmm. and how it's stronger than life and that this is playing while he's loading the gun and outside McPherson and his partner realize Leideker never left the apartment building so they run back inside Mm -hmm. and Leideker creeps into Laura's room and he tells her that he can't abide her being with a brute like McPherson and (laughs) that now they'll be together like they always should Mm. have been and he goes to shoot her, but the cops break in, and shoot him dead, as well as the clock. Right, and he falls over, and he says goodbye, Laura, goodbye, my love, mm-hmm. and that's the end of Laura.
2: Yes, and that's the end of Leideker's
1: attempts to foil Laura's relationships. Yes, so she's she's free. Um, yeah. So any last reflections on Laura. Anything we didn't talk about? Mm. <laughs> I feel like maybe the one yeah. thing we didn't really talk about maybe. enough is how this film is classified as a classic noir, but it's just not really. Like it's it doesn't have those salacious elements to it. Like I think what you were Mm -hmm. saying about this being more of a vehicle for these other characters and like just working within that framework that was really popular and sellable Mm -hmm. is the reason that it's a noir. Yeah. Right. I I guess
2: we covered a lot, Yeah, but but I'm thinking that because this movie was made during world war two, there was concern about kind of the representation of American life within it to soldiers abroad or people coming back from the war efforts. And they, in addition to some of the more Hayes code type verboten content, they cut a number of lines that concerned money mm. just so, and sort of wealth just so it didn't seem as though people here were living, you know, High on the hog. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. yeah since oh, People interesting. lost their lives. Right, right. right. Interesting. So, but there is a lot of stuff about it that's so toned down, and I know you were talking about that earlier in the context of noir writ large.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: So that's Laura. Yeah.
1: Um, not a traditional femme fatale at all. She didn't even do anything. <laughs> uh, Thank God for her friends. Right. Yeah. Uh, and... She's really exists as this character that's kind of just a vehicle for the projections of the other characters mm-hmm. yeah, uh, we
2: see what we want to see in her
1: mhm,, yeah. yeah, and I mean, her features are kind of a blank slate for that, like mm-hmm. you know it in that she's this classically like eurocentrically beautiful white woman, and we can you can just kind of project whatever you want onto her because of her non-entityness almost mm-hmm. yeah she's again very null one of the things
2: that we didn't talk about that is coming to mind now is Diane Redfern is not a character we ever see in motion on screen at all and except for the photo and we do see this photo and it's this very kind of I don't know, all American girl, mm-hmm. but with a lot more panache, I would say, mm. than Jean Tierney, and that's even emphasized when a character mentioned that she lived in Brooklyn. So I right. This, so I, I even though she's not on screen, sometimes she has a greater presence than Laura right, herself.
1: Right, right, and but also interesting that there's this like mistaken identity between them mm-hmm. because of the what you were saying about the buckshot wound, right um and but also there must be some physical resemblances Mm -hmm. between them um great well thank you so much yeah um where can people find you on social media if you want them to oh
2: my goodness well people can find me on i guess instagram at helena Fleabody, like (laughs) helena peabody but flea um yeah thank you so much for having me annie and Thank you, Gene Tierney, for your wonderful performance.
1: Yes, and Clifton Webb. Yes.
2: <laughs> Clifton. Yes. And Dame. Dame. Yeah, yes. yeah.
1: Exactly. <laughs> yes. You know where to find me, as always. Twitter, Instagram, Guts Jallo, Patreon.com slash Guts And I'll see you next time.